The Rock is the most famous and was the most feared prison ever built. Is it really true that there's never been an escape? Now that's true. From 1936 until 63, when the prison closed, there were 14 attempts. No one is believed to have made it to shore. A lot, at least. This cell block housed the most awesome scum in America. Welcome to The Rock, gentlemen. Seems Alcatraz was just reopened. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of The Rock. This isn't a train exercise, is it? No, Dr. Goodspeed, it's not a training exercise. Hosted by Arnie. I'm an educated man. Jacob. You're between The Rock and a hard case. And Stuart. I'm not an evil man. If you can believe that, then it's a start. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Make no mistake about it, gentlemen. We are now in harm's way. We hope you enjoy the show. God be with all of you. Man your positions, man. Today we're discussing The Rock. Starring Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage... Ed Harris, directed by Michael Bay. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and are you ready to rock? Maybe, maybe like light rock, soft rock. Uh, It's Stuart. And this is Jacob, and what do you say we cut the chit-chat, a-holes? Let's get into The Rock. Michael Bay, we're back. We're one step closer to Armageddon. I saw this was on our schedule, and I'm like, wait, I don't remember any patron donating for us to do The Rock. Why are we doing The Rock? And now I'm still asking. I'm happy to do The Rock. I was confused too. I got an email saying we're doing The Rock. Okay. Any excuse for me to break out my Criterion DVD set of The Rock is a happy day. But why are we doing this? Yeah, we're not here to talk about Michael Bay. I mean, we are. We're going to. It's kind of impossible not to when you're talking about this movie. But we're here really to talk about the, quote, massive talent of Nicolas Cage. Because he has a meta-comedy coming out this weekend, we're covering that one. I thought we should cover some popular movie of his that shows why he is one of our most unique and eccentric leading men. You're going to narrow it down to one. There's Vampire's Kiss. There's Adaptation. There's Pig. There are so many you could pick. Leaving Las Vegas. Without a doubt, there are many more movies that show eccentricities. I picked the popular movie that sort of... I mean, this was an important year for Nicolas Cage. 1996 is the year that he wins the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas and then becomes a proven action star. That wasn't true prior to this. He had had leading man roles, but he was mostly sort of a quirky, eccentric, kind of got to where he was because he was Coppola's nephew. But after this point, kind of like Johnny Depp after Pirates, The Rock legitimized him in a way that said, you can put him in Con Air, you can put him in Face Off, you can make him mainstream. Yeah, it's funny to me because I'd been a Nicolas Cage fan for quite a while by the time The Rock came out. I mean, It Could Happen to You, Guarding Tess... These were movies I'd watch again and again, and I'm not even being facetious. Yeah, that's so weird to think that those were draws. Yes, he was trying to sell himself as a romantic lead. I think Moonstruck was the one that had sort of pushed him in that direction, and Peggy Sue got married. There had been hits, but he's 
you know, let's just call it out. He's a weird looking dude. He has eccentric takes on how to read a line or how to give a facial reaction. He just isn't a classic, you know, handsome leading man. So I think those movies, Honeymoon in Vegas, seem to be the one that hit the biggest in terms of his romantic comedy career. But he became an action star in 1996 because of this movie. I think the one everybody goes back to except me, the one I didn't see until much later, Raising Arizona. That was my introduction to him. (laughs) Yeah. That's really a Coen Brothers movie. I mean, yes, people are in it, but I always feel like the Coen Brothers are the stars of all of their movies. So, yeah, he was quirky in the ways that the Coen Brothers needed him to be. And this one, again, it's like, can we sell this to the masses, the people that would never go see Vampire's Kiss, Raising Arizona, any of that kind of stuff? I did not see this movie. I'll just go ahead and put it out there that most 90s action movies... I took a pass on by this point. These are the film school years. You don't go see popcorn films when you're trying to learn about Bergman, Kurosawa, all of that film history lore. Something like this just didn't seem like worth my time. And I don't even remember seeing commercials for this, advertisements, trailers, anything like that. I was living abroad starting mid-96, so I could have missed it there just living in another country. Movies not being my priority while having different experiences. But I remember I saw Armageddon. People were like, well, you saw The Rock, right? That's like Michael Bay best film and it was only maybe 10 12 years ago that i finally sat down i think it was on tv and i'm like let let me give this as a try supposedly is best i don't like those transformer things let's see if the rock is any better and surprisingly i didn't see this in theaters despite liking nicholas cage and liking bad boys you saw bad boys right like you you knew what this was going to be right I didn't know who Michael Bay was. Bad Boys told me who Will Smith and Martin Lawrence were as far as action goes. But Michael Bay was a name I still didn't know. And honestly, Sean Connery, the guy from Leaving Las Vegas, which I loved, but both of them, Alcatraz, it didn't really interest me. And then everybody was talking about this film. Everybody. And I had one of those cable box crackers back in the day, millennials. You used to be able to buy for 50 bucks on the internet, something that would give you every channel, you know, when HBO cost a lot of money. And this included pay-per-view channels. I probably ended up watching The Rock 15, 20 times. I was reluctant to see it, but I ended up really liking it when I watched it on TV. And Arnie, am I right? That is the reputation for this, like that this is Michael Bay's best film, like just the best action. Like that's always the reputation I had heard about this one. I guess so. I guess it must be. Nobody says Transformers is the best. Armageddon might be considered the best. I mean, if you want to go to the people who don't like Michael Bay, they'll say pain and gain. As far as straight action, though, Michael Bay, I think it's this one. At at least that was my understanding. If you don't like Michael Bay, you'll still like this one. It's certainly what put him on the map. I mean, he did Bad Boys for Bruckheimer Simpson, and... He got that gig because he'd done a Days of Thunder music video for Bruckheimer Simpson. And The Rock, after the success of Bad Boys, The Rock was a project that had bounced around studios, bounced around producers. It seemed nobody really wanted to do it. And finally, it ended up with Bruckheimer Simpson. Michael Bay turned it down many times. And once it got to Simpson and Simpson talked to Bay, Bay was promised a $60 million budget. He's like all right, maybe I should take this film. And it turned out to be a really deft career move. It made over $300 million globally on that $60 million budget. It was a breakout hit. 
nobody expected it to be as big as it was. Even with like Sean Connery, that's a surprise. Like, yeah, he's old at this point, but still Sean Connery. Mm, he had had Medicine Man. There had been some True. reasons <laughs> to think that he wasn't always something you want in a movie. Yeah, I can't say that there's anything here that signals Golden Bullet. Nick Cage in action. This is, as Stewart said, his first attempt. Sean Connery. It's been a long time since Indiana Jones 3. Ed Harris. I mean, he was making milk money around this time. Yes, action star Ed Harris. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, we got Candyman here. There's a lot of faces I recognize in this one. Yeah, it's a big cast, for sure. It is. I I was surprised at the number of names I recognized in the opening credits. Well, Arnie, why don't you go ahead and give them the plot, and we'll find out what makes The Rock so special. Upset over the U.S. government's disavowal of Marines killed on Black Ops missions, General Frank Hummel, played by Ed Harris, has gotten a squad of troops to help him blackmail the U.S. government. The rogue troops steal six warheads containing deadly VX gas. They then take control of the prison on Alcatraz. They take the 81 tourists hostage and tell the government they will fire the missiles at San Francisco, killing scores with the deadly gas, unless the government pays a million dollars to each of the families of 83 disavowed Marines who had been under Hummel's command. The FBI sends in a SEAL team to fight the rogue Marines. With them are two specialists, chemical weapons expert Agent Stanley Goodspeed, played by Nicolas Cage, there to neutralize the poison. And, to navigate a way into the impenetrable fortress, is the only convict to ever successfully escape from Alcatraz, former British SAS agent John Mason, played by Sean Connery. No sooner does the team get to the island when the Navy SEALs fall for a trap and are killed by Hummel's men. Only Mason and Goodspeed survive. Goodspeed convinces Mason to stay and help as, if the missiles are fired, Mason's daughter, a San Francisco resident, will be killed in the fallout. The two men infiltrate the rock diehard style, killing several of Hummel's troops along the way, and they disable four of the six rockets. But time runs out. The general fires one of the rockets, but at the last second, the general has it detonate safely underwater. The general never intended to kill tens of thousands of innocents, and he's prepared to give up, but his men refuse. Captain Darrow, played by Tony Todd, leads an insurrection. The troops kill the general and prepare to fire the final missile. The president orders an airstrike, prepared to sacrifice the hostages to save the lives of tens of thousands of San Francisco residents. As the planes go to bomb the island, Stan disarms the final missile, while John provides cover by killing more of the enemy troops. Together, they stop the troops and save the hostages. Goodspeed signals the flare, which stops the bomber planes, as credits roll. And as we start, gotta point out, this is a Hollywood Pictures film. You know, the studio that had the reputation, if it's the Sphinx, it stinks. This must be their biggest hit. I mean, it's not around anymore, but this was Disney's attempt to create a brand of adult films. Don't mean that in a pornographic way, but films that would appeal to adults (laughs) that didn't have children. And they just weren't very good at it, as the box office reputation of all of those Hollywood Pictures movies proved. They were supposed to be blockbusters. This one legitimately was. It made what, about 125 here in the States? Yeah, around that, and I remember you gave me that phrase back in the 90s, if it's the Sphinx, it stinks, and it really did hold true. I remember being the biggest Eddie Murphy fan around, and then seeing his movie for Disney, The Distinguished Gentleman, and being like, that is awful. So, when I'm coming back to The Rock, I haven't seen this in 
15 years, I see that logo and suddenly I go, maybe this isn't going to be as good as I remembered. Maybe I've grown up. Maybe after seeing Michael Bay's recent stuff and hating most of it, Six Underground, please never make me review that. It's awful. Ooh, it's bad. It is bad. It is so bad. Has anyone seen Ambulance? No. So I was really nervous just seeing that logo. It is almost ingrained. I guess that's why they stopped doing this. I mean, they had Touchstone before Hollywood Pictures, and now neither one exists. And as we get started here, I mean, this feels like a hundred different action movies I've seen before. John Woo, I mean, anyone, like when I see this funeral in the rain and the military firing their rifles into the sky with Ed Harris looking sullen at his medals while he puts his wedding ring next to what's obviously a dead wife, like all of this stuff. Was this fresh ever? (laughs) In 1996, would people be like, wow, this is exciting? It is so cliche, like you're saying, with the funeral in the rain, and it just drags on, too. Like, how much do we have to see Ed Harris go through? Like, he's losing troops, he's losing his wife, like, that's a major plot point. He had to wait for his wife to die for some reason. He didn't want to do this till she was dead, so, yes, this opening montage spanning, I don't know, decades while he waits for that wife to go. I'll agree that... If you're looking just at the opening montage, it's pretty rote. Other than the fact that for reasons unexplained, (laughs) the montage is put together with dissolves to explosions of fire, and then we're back at funerals again. And, I mean, it's not like the explosions are what's killing the troops, it's just fire effects. But if you're talking about Ed Harris's character as a whole, I would say he is a evolution of villainous people from previous movies. He's a step further along the road. They're really going to try to get you to sympathize with him. Really, like, he is never in the wrong, even though he's holding a whole city hostage and has toxic chemicals. Like, they really go out of their way to apologize for him. And I feel like this is something Michael Bay does, very pro-military. Like, if they're the victims, they're the victims of the government. It's weird seeing this as an early Michael Bay project like did he have any input into the script did he just fall upon this trope in all of his films with beaten upon military men a ton of people wrote this and Bay talked on and on about it the one name that I recognized who came along and gave a rewrite near the end was Aaron Sorkin (laughs) worked on the script I saw that. I saw Tarantino. I mean, there's stuff they stole from Tarantino. I don't know if he actually wrote on this, but I read that. But a lot of what you're going to talk about, the sympathetic military, was brought in by Ed Harris. All three lead actors had a lot of input in their character. Ed Harris turned this film down many times because, as written, it was just a generic bad guy probably akin to Die Hard 2, where you had those evil military people as well. And the way that Ed Harris wanted to play it was sympathetic, was he's not insane, he's not a murderer, trying to provide honor to that character and walk a very fine line. So that was something Harris demanded of the role if he were to do it. Okay, so that is my question. Is the man insane? Or, like, are we supposed to see a calculation here? Like, because it will get called out. I don't know how whoever got left behind at Desert Storm, no less. But there were black ops missions at Desert Storm. Right. Okay, yes. So we'll take on its face that we don't know the true story of Desert Storm. And there were people that were betrayed. There were some Desert Storm people, though, who weren't black ops, who were just left there when they withdrew, he said, too. So there was that. Yeah. 
I mean, historically, that's not true. I think, like, the casualties for America were under 70 in that war. But, yes, they're trying to make it like it was another Vietnam, and he felt betrayed. And, again, I couldn't figure out whether it was really that or whether that his wife died, and that's what made him really, like, flip his wig and be like, okay, this justifies poisoning the entire city of San Francisco. I take it, I mean, to fast forward to the end, is that he didn't want to go through with it, that he was still an honorable man. He was just going to threaten people to get these vets' families a million dollars. That's all that this was. It was extortion. That's how I take it by the end. Yeah, he wasn't doing any of this for himself. He was doing it for his men and to expose the government, really. I mean, what you have going on here is this movie has a villain and an anti-hero, and what both have in common is they have dirt on the government. Yeah, and we're going to see military vehicles in this film. And when you do that, like, the military has a say in Final Cut. So, again, I feel like Ed Harris, bad guy military, but they're going to make him as sympathetic as possible. So they can keep that military footage with airplanes and everything. And that footage is courtesy of Simpson and Bruckheimer, Michael Bay's first exposure to this. I think what we're seeing is his experience here will then help shape the films he would make with transformers and things he's learning oh if i'm nice to the military i get really expensive shots mm-hmm. all right so we start out this is sort of paint by numbers die hard you mentioned that in your plot summary and i think if you've seen an action movie in the 90s you'll recognize what's happening here they're breaking into a naval weapons depot and basically taking chemical weapons this was trendy we've covered outbreak you know at the time we were thinking about ebola and sarin gas all of that attack had happened in tokyo they're going to use that against americans this was going to be sarin gas in the script they decided sarin wasn't deadly enough this vx gas real this is real like these anal beads like that was my memory like nick cage having to diffuse anal beads in this full of chemicals you went with anal beads but i thought like it was a bed bath and beyond like a <laughs> like a soap bomb or something like that you know? <laughs> it just felt like something to make like the bath water nice bath bomb put this in your bath and you'll relax so much you'll never wake again mm, i guess <laughs> Yeah, they referred to it as the pearl necklace with the beads, but it doesn't look like this. I don't think it makes your skin blister and melt, but it is a highly deadly gas that is against the Geneva Convention to use. Well, I'm, I'm glad we invented that. Score another one for humanity. Right. So they get this for reasons, and then they go on tour at, at Alcatraz, and then I guess there's 80 people over there. They grab them, throw them in the jail cells. Let the children go. The general tells the kids... Yeah, I laughed at that. He goes to a little girl, tell your teacher to get everyone on the bus. We never see that. They don't lock kids up. So I guess, like, did the teacher have to steer that ferry back to the mainland? Like, <laughs> I would guess much like a field trip bus driver, the ferry captain was still on the boat. <laughs> this is where we have, yeah, Candyman blowing in with some other guy. And we realize that Ed Harris is working in tandem with other people for some reason. I don't know why he needs them, but we'll learn that some of these people don't know the rest of the team, and that's going to create this friction for the climax. You're telling me all of this is to make Ed Harris's character humble, sympathetic. It doesn't work for me. I feel like one thing that's really important if you're doing a Die Hard is you get an Alan Rickman. You get a villain that you love to hate, that has some great lines, does some really malevolent kills, 
But you don't get fighter jets at the end if you make him that character. Yeah, Ed Harris is boring to me. I don't buy it. Like, crying at the wife's graveside and putting school children on the ferry, but keeping the tourists. None of that's working. And I like the thought of having a more realistic villain than a Hans Gruber. You know, I like that this is a person who has a motivation I can accept. And instead of just being a cartoon. What? This is the cartoon. Hans felt real. He wanted money. This doesn't feel real at all. This is a joke. Yeah, I agree with you, Stuart. Like, I get it. Wow, Michael Bay having a sympathetic villain? Like, that seems like, you know, we've talked about Bayziness, and I get it. He's new here, so he doesn't have a lot of input, I guess, with this script. But that's something a mature filmmaker would do, is have a villain that could be sympathetic, that could go both ways, maybe. But look, Die Hard's a perfect movie. The Rock is not, so Hans Gruber it is. Do you understand what I'm saying, though, is a villain you can sympathize with is always more interesting. I don't. But you really think that this guy is like someone that you would fight alongside. These men are right to point these gas missiles at San Francisco and say, this is what it takes. I think that is total bullshit. I think their mission is righteous if their methods are not. Their mission is insanity. This is not the way to go about this. I mean, this is only their mission because they want to film at Alcatraz. Like, you could just do this from a parking lot. There's no (laughs) reason to take over Alcatraz. Right. A, it's close to San Francisco, and B, impenetrable. That's the thing about Alcatraz, is the myth is nobody ever escaped. You know, why would anybody ever try to break in? It would be a perfect place for them to hole up, and it's on the ocean. Their escape plan is get from here to a non extradition country so it's a better spot to do that than if they say decided to hole up in oak brook and threaten chicago i'm not buying it is all i'm saying i get that you <laughs> want to have die hard at alcatraz that sounds fun but this as a setup is pretty lame and ed harris just in general just as a villain even before we're to learn of like his dastardly plans were crying for him mm, not doing it refuse. I'm sorry, I think Ed Harris is a villain. If you watch some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, this guy comes off like a rageaholic asshole. He is scarier in the outtakes than he is on screen. Yeah, I wish it came through. Again, I think you really need to love the villain in these kinds of movies in order for you to go with the cliches. So you don't love the other villains then, pretty much led by Tony Todd, because I thought Candyman was pretty good as the malevolent devil on the shoulder for our general. I don't think anybody here has a great screen presence. It feels like there's 60 dudes in paramilitary outfits jumping around on zip lines and doing all of this stuff and nobody stands out. Nobody has the presence of Alan Rickman, which is my barometer. The fact that they use darts and things at the opening mission doesn't win your sympathy then, huh? That word is just infuriating me. Sympathy? Why are you trying to make me sympathize with a stupid cause? This is a stupid cause. I will never agree that pointing death missiles at San Francisco is the way to get military families money. That's dumb. That's not the cause. That's the plan. The cause is a good cause. Ah! They know they're in Black Ops. They know, like, what the deal is. Like, that is my thing. Like, Ed Harris knows, like, you gotta be disavowed if you're doing these secret missions. So, yeah, maybe do a bank heist to give these people some money on the side, but threaten chemical warfare? No. Yeah, and his own men. Again, endangering these... Supposedly, he loves soldiers... And then they puts them in this predicament. Ridiculous. I mean, they dead right from the get-go. When they break into the naval depot, one of them doesn't make it out of that vault. The little pearl drops and we see the effect that it can have. And I guess his family's probably not getting that severance. No. 
Okay, so you don't like the bad guy, either of you. What about when we cut from here and we meet our hero, Nicolas Cage, good speed, FBI agent, chemical weapons expert, and we meet him in a way only Michael Bay could <laughs> introduce, setting a hula girl doll on fire. Yeah, there's a Rube Goldberg device that they're doing some like contest or something, so I thought for sure the climax was going to be a Rube Goldberg device to stop the last chemical missile or whatever, but no, we do see Nick Cage here. My, again, my memory was this was a pretty straight action film, but no, we get big Nicolas Cage. Almost right from the beginning, he is super happy about his Meet the Beatles album that he has paid $600 for look I, i'm not a big beatles fan but i do collect vinyl i check this out because i'm like that sounds like nick you're always overpaying for t-rex skulls <laughs> now beatles albums like you can get that record original pressing for like 80 bucks it does not go for a lot well a in the 90s it was a different market you didn't have ebay yeah you go to salvation army like i did like everyone was getting rid of their vinyl it was super cheap but what we have here is another actor who came in and nick basically wrote his entire character clearly <laughs> the entire record thing right <laughs> is because at the end of the script was the line do you like rocket man and nick cage is like why am i asking about an elton john song this makes no sense this is out of nowhere the only way this makes sense i have to be an audiophile I have to be way into music. I've got to play the guitar. I've got to collect records. I've got to talk about Super Freak. We're supposed to tie a line between Meet the Beatles and Elton John. Like, that all becomes because he's an audiophile? Like, okay. You know, God bless Nicolas Cage. <laughs> it doesn't always, it, in fact, oftentimes goes really, really bad. Which is even better. What he attempts <laughs> to bring to movies, the uncagedness quality, can really torpedo good films and make a bad film an extraordinary like ghost writer like all that jelly bean <laughs> nonsense he owns that stuff when he wants to just embrace eccentricity he will just go there and you're right this is a very boring character that he has uncaged my favorite is still kiss of death where he's like a bodybuilder where he's bench pressing women instead of weights that is Cage all over. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I remember, and again, you remember those details, you don't remember the movies. That's what I think Cage is aware of. He's stealing the spotlight away from the film itself to say, look at me. And I feel like he does that very successfully here in The Rock. This is a character that on the page seems very boring. He's supposed to be a nerd. He's supposed to be someone that's never picked up a gun, who's going to be thrust into an action scenario, and has to find his inner He-Man. I think, like, John Cusack played this role in Con Air. Yes. But Cage, he's going to make it all about the Beatles and funny voices. Yeah, you talk about what's on the page. My understanding is that the script, again, was not funny. There wasn't humor. That this is just Cage being Cage, bringing it in and improvising. Okay, but you got to admit, Michael Bay is involved in this. Michael Bay is known for his humor. Yeah, he'll get the hairdresser later on. I feel like that's all Michael Bay. That was Michael Bay, but just lines like when... Ed Harris locks up everybody, and the one guy goes, What kind of damn hell tour is this? Reminded me of Bernie Mac lines out of Transformers. I mean, or half the dialogue of Bad Boys. And I love Bad Boys, but that's what the dialogue is. So you just have to realize if you're going to bring Michael Bay into a project, there's going to be his brand of humor. 
Basingness is very low on the scale here. As someone that has only learned about him by being on this show, I hadn't ever really seen Michael Bay's work prior to being subjugated to it, frankly. <laughs> and I feel like when you look at the later Transformer films, that is a more confident you know, lampshade on the head kind of party dude than what we see here. This is a director that is still finding his voice and is probably letting his actors do a lot of whatever they want. I will agree. Like, I'll call out some of the moments from like baziness. I'm like, oh no, they just provided like a reason for this thing to happen. Like they actually thought it through. It was a shock. I feel like you can tell this movie is what, 1996 because the ghost of Tarantino is really floating over this thing. You mean just straight up copying him? Yeah, you have a whole scene here where they're going to grab hypodermic needles and say we may need to jab them into our own hearts or something. Like we don't remember what happened to Uma Thurman two years before. <laughs> What is going on here? They got some package that they intercept this was sent to the FBI. There's like a baby doll that's shooting out gas. It's all very fast. It's worth pointing out the 90s was a time of relatively low military conflicts, like wars and such like that. We weren't involved in the ways that we would be before or after with these heavy military endeavors. And so, yeah, Bosnia-Serbia was one of the biggest things going. You have American Serbians sending Bosnian refugees what looks like humanitarian supplies that are actually laced with sarin gas. Yeah, this felt very Oklahoma bombing to me, you know, and it was predating anthrax by a lot. But yeah, I just went with this as this is their job. They have things they have to defuse. My memory coming back was this was a training exercise. That would have made the most sense is this was a training exercise, but it does introduce Chekhov's hypodermic needle. It doesn't make any sense. The way this should work is he's working with a weapon we haven't seen before. We need to call in a chemist to find out what this gas is. But they know what this gas is. I don't know what good a bioweapons expert is when missiles are already pointed at San Francisco. Yeah, what's well, weird that this is setting up the way movies do, checkoffs, whatever. This is setting up that, like, he, do I cut the red or the blue wire? Is We got three seconds left to defuse the... That is not going to be the end. The end is, like, we just take a microchip. He's not, like, mixing stuff to get rid of the toxic element in these bombs. Like, he does nothing with chemicals. He takes out a microchip. That's my memory, too. I thought he was a bomb specialist in this movie. All he does is smash circuit boards. I think Michael Bean could have done that for him. Yeah, if only he had lived. Again, what we're supposed to see is that this is a Revenge of the Nerd story. This is a guy that gets sand kicked in his face who's going to meet a really cool dude that teaches him how to be James Bond, basically. But he's pretty cool already. He is fucking the prom queen. Yeah, I don't know who <laughs> this actress is. Is this someone of note? Nope. She, I looked her up. She had one very minor credit before this, and she worked after this, but not in anything. I think this just goes to Michael Bay's penchant for finding raw talent that he thinks looks good in tight shirts. Yeah, basically, you need to have a human story, die hard. His wife was in jeopardy in many of those adventures. Then it became like the son or the daughter or whatever it was. You want to have a family connection. You want to to feel personal they really got a strain to be like his girlfriend in washington dc wants to follow him to san francisco even though she's pregnant and he's not sure he wants it so that they can have a romantic weekend while he does whatever he just presumes it's going to be a training exercise but no it's actually a bioweapons catastrophe he does want the kid he came around on that pretty fast once it was 
a reality. Yeah, I like that moment. And again, that bad boys, no homo humor, I really didn't like. But here, like, there are moments when he, Nick Cage, goes off on this rant about it's irresponsible to bring a kid in this world. And then his girlfriend's like, I'm pregnant. And she's like, didn't you just say all this stuff? And he's like, well, I meant it at the time, like, which is like seven seconds ago. Like, there are some jokes in here that got me. Usually when Nick Cage is probably just riffing. None of it was ad lib, but it was his input into the character that got it in there. I mean, it just shows that, like, here was a guy that looked super tough in the lab and wouldn't stick the needle in his heart, was going to work till the final seconds. But you throw, you know, commitment and baby and domesticity at him, and he looks more afraid than he is when he's in danger. And so that's just sort of the joke here is, I don't know, is this a character trait we see throughout the commitment phobia? Or I guess that he will be partnered with someone that also has a person in danger in San Francisco, and that will bring him closer to Sean Connery. Yeah, just imagine if Nick Cage or Sean Connery didn't have ties to a relative or loved one in San Francisco. Like, they would have just ditched this mission. Let them all die. (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Apparently, it's easy to walk away when your girlfriend in short shorts is not waiting on the veranda of the San Francisco Bay. I get the impression Connery would have walked away. I don't ever get the impression Goodspeed would have. But, you know, you say commitment phobia. Again, it's like two lines by the time we come back to him naked, screwing her on the balcony. He's ready for marriage. He's ready for fatherhood. But their lovemaking is going to be interrupted by one of my favorite character actors of all time, John Spencer, playing the director of the FBI. He's a tool, right? The point is the head of the FBI is a complete tool, and he has earned the reputation that Ed Harris is pinning on him. The government locks away good people, and he did it to this British agent and some convoluted backstory (laughs) 30 years ago. I mean, this backstory is maybe more fun than the rest of the movie. Like, I want the prequel about John Mason. There is a theory going around. Now, this was not the filmmaker's intent other than Sean Connery, but there is a fan theory that what this movie is is actually a James Bond sequel. And that Sean Connery is James Bond, and he was on a mission for His Majesty's Secret Service to steal American secrets. He got captured, he used the fake name of John Mason, and because he's James Bond, you couldn't keep him in Alcatraz. And what we're seeing here is... Never say never say never again. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, he stole all the secrets. He has a microfiche of Roswell aliens, of who killed JFK. Like, this stuff, and maybe I'm making this connection because Nick Cage is in this as well, but it's like, I remember National Treasure kind of being fun with all those conspiracies wrapped around history. I kind of like that. So I like the backstory for Sean Connery's character. Sean Connery is coasting on his James Bond reputation in this movie. Everything is built around the fact that we know he was a pretty badass guy 30 years ago. And does he do anything really badass now in this movie? His stunt double does. I feel like there's a lot of winking at the audience. I feel like there's a fourth wall smirk to it all. If he were actually the action hero, if this were Die Hard and he's John McClane, I don't think it would fly. All of his coolest action scenes are against Nicolas Cage and the FBI. Right. Once he gets to The Rock, he's not that badass. But to get there, the fact that he could take a quarter and turn it into a glass cutter and scare the hell out of the FBI like that, the fact that he can take a little length of shower cord and use it to become a way to throw the FBI director off a balcony and not kill him, 
He's pretty badass in these scenes. And I like how he plays off of Nick Cage. You know, they'll send Cage in, Goodspeed, to talk to Mason, to convince him. And Cage isn't being a nerd in this, but he is like an office guy. So it's fun to see that tough bravado of a James Bond interacting with Nick Cage being eccentric and going big. Like, it's not as good as I would want it to be, but it's good enough, their interactions. It's weird. I feel like the focus of this movie... It really gets distracted about trying to get Sean Connery on board with the film and the plot. That's half the film. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why we have to spend so much time convincing Mason that this is worthy of his time. To me, like it really undermines even further the Ed Harris plot. It really is surprising how little of this movie is focused on Alcatraz. But truly, getting there is half the fun. I mean, they're on a deadline, the clock is ticking because Ed Harris said, you have 24 hours and I'm gonna put the gas over San Francisco. But Mason has spent 30 years in prison with no trial, and so understand his reticence to just jump on board and help out the FBI and... And honestly, I would miss Ed Harris more if Sean Connery wasn't so charismatic and captivating on screen here. I am loving his scenes where he's getting the haircut and talks about cutting somebody's balls off with snippers. And he is a lot of fun to watch. His dialogue is snappy and maybe it is breaking the fourth wall. And he said to Bay halfway through this movie, you know what I'm doing, don't you? I'm just playing James Bond. I mean, he he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Michael Bay didn't, but I'm enjoying watching old Bond here. Again, it's good enough for me. It could be a lot better, but it's enough to get me through. And when I sit down to watch an action film, I enjoy the action genre, but I also recognize they're not always great. Like, I'm waiting for the action pieces a lot of the time. So, like, the fact that I'm getting a chuckle every now and then with this, this is good enough to hold me over. I remember the first time I watched this, though, I wasn't pre-sold on it. I heard people said they liked it. And I remember thinking, why in the hell am I watching a San Francisco car chase in a movie about Alcatraz? <laughs> Yeah, I was really dumbfounded as to the focus of this movie 45 minutes in. Yeah, because <laughs> Speed had been a big hit, wouldn't it be fun to do that to the San Francisco trolley? You do feel, in so many ways, that everything is just happening because we're riffing on what's popular. This is coasting on James Bond cred, Die Hard cred, Speed cred. What is this movie in and of itself but a, a litany of quotation marks? It wants to be everything that you've already loved. Sure, it's an action film, and that's how a lot of action films are, so I'm willing to go with that. I'm watching this car chase, and you know what impresses me? I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, Baziness, like, why is Mason just hitting everything? Because we need to see explosions and things break. And then they call it out. Like, look, it is not the best reason, but they're like, oh, he's trying to cause roadblocks for the rest of the police. Like, okay, they got a reason for him to smash and all this stuff. And yeah, I like what he goes after that. I don't think he deliberately goes after that trolley, but I hadn't seen a trolley get blown up like that before. So that was fun. <laughs> and I will admit, especially now and especially seeing where Bay's career has gone, the humor of the trolley director, I almost feel like Bay uses African-Americans in a way that doesn't always put them in the best light. Or, to put it more bluntly, a minstrel show. Yes, agreed. 
You're so crazy! Yeah, I, I got it. Yeah, you're really progressive there. Yeah, we had the guy who was imprisoned on Alcatraz, and that's one joke, okay. But now you've got basically that same performance coming from the trolley driver. And so I am wincing a little bit at how Bay did this. And it's not a product of the 90s. It's a product of Michael Bay. He didn't treat Bernie Mac all that much better. But it is a fun car chase with adrenaline. Say what you will about Michael Bay, he can do action. He can shoot it well. This Ferrari versus Hummer car chase, it's funny because they are so mismatched in every single way, (laughs) and I'm really into it. This is as good as any Fast and the Furious car chase. It is the best action scene of this film. Like, the rest, we're gonna get a lot of shooting and running around. Like, this is a legit action piece here with, like, you gotta really plan this out and explosions and all that. Like, this is what we want from Michael Bay now in a film. But confusing. I mean, I think you guys are agreeing with me. It's really weird we're taking this tangent to spend all of this time on this when we were told this is about breaking into Alcatraz. A hundred percent Stuart. I don't know why half the film is not in Alcatraz. And producers and especially Disney execs were fighting with Bay. Even the screenwriter was fighting with Bay. Do not put this car chase in here. Why is this car chase in here? And Bay said, because we've had a lot of talking in this movie and there's going to be a lot of adolescent boys in the audience who do not care about the talkiness. We need an action scene to bring them back in. And the screenwriter said, why are you making a film for adolescent boys? And Bay said, because I know who my audience is. And during this car shot, we get what I consider to be the epitome of a Bay shot. He created it in Bad Boys. It's the up angle on Nicolas Cage where the camera's rotating around him while he's turning as the trolley's blowing up. Yeah, the camera spins a lot, but that is like that bad boy shot right there. The reason given is that Mason is doing all of this for his daughter. I know. Choke on that one. (laughs) We have one scene with this daughter. We never even cut back to her. Yes, but he is basically just trying to, if he's only going to have a few minutes on the outside, he's going to take full advantage of it to try and mend. When would this child be conceived? And how would she even know about, I mean... It's sometime in the 70s. I think they were at a Led Zeppelin concert, they said. Yes, yes, yep. yes. But anyway, it's thoroughly ridiculous and not even in a brown arrow way, but it provides a melodramatic reason for why Mason cares about people on the shore. I cannot wait till we get to Armageddon because Stuart, like Michael Bay, like he perfects these kind of family relationships and just pulling all the melodrama from them. All the seeds are here, though. I'm seeing it all. This daughter thing contrived, absolutely, but... If you're dealing with a bad guy, in air quotes, he does need a personal motivation to stay. Whereas, again, I'll repeat, I don't think Goodspeed would have ever left whether or not his fiancée was in San Francisco. Yeah, he's sort of the, I mean, he's with the government. That's part of it. He's going to do what the government needs to do. And maybe it's what he learns by the end of the movie that allows him to be more like Mason. He's going to try and be as cool as Sean Connery by the end. But here at the beginning, they're sort of at loggerheads, and they need Sean Connery because, I find this hard to believe, okay, he's the only one that got off alive, but they never figured out how he did it, and so that's the way they're going to go in. 
I mean, that's kind of dumb, right? We can all admit that what might have worked for a man 30 years ago is not going to work for a SWAT team. It is a conceit that I have no problem with. Like, that is the film. You got this guy who got off the rock. That's going to get him on. Yes, it's silly. It's happenstance. I am going to give the film that. I'm not going to complain about it. Okay. And I think the reason why I'm complaining is I don't really like Sean Connery in this movie. You're saying you find him charming. I feel he's sort of coasting on his old cool. And I would rather spend time with Cage, quite frankly. I know that the suits probably didn't trust Cage to carry a movie at this time. Sean Connery was front and center on the poster. He's the thing they were pushing. But honestly, they don't need him. You would have been okay if he got burned up in the furnace. It's a buddy comedy, though. And... I think the whole point is that you don't keep the SEALs around. All these Navy SEALs, I, again, 15 years since I'd seen this, I thought that they would stick around, especially since one is Michael Bean. I kind of thought that they would keep him for a while and it would be these two working with the SEALs. But you need to have your man of action and your man of science. And that's where these two balance perfectly in this buddy comedy. But I don't think Sean Connery's that good at the action, and I don't think Nicolas Cage knows any science, so they're not really representing (laughs) these opposite polarities that you're talking about. Uh, Stuart, I don't think I'm that far off from you. I'm finding moments where I'm enjoying them, but yes, this could be much better. Like, there's a lot of room for growth here. That's why people say, best Michael Bay action film? Like, okay, maybe good for Michael Bay, but as an action film, like, you could have made this relationship way better. Yeah, and you mentioned Michael Bean, who by this point had sort of fallen out with Cameron and probably wasn't making top-tier movies at this point. He's still recognizable. I thought he was going to be the surprise bad guy. I thought we'd find out that he was secretly working with Ed Harris, and once they got there, once we finally do this whole swimming and rolling through (laughs) a furnace or whatever that is, all these little booby traps that they do to, to get there, I thought he would be a traitor. I had abyss flashbacks when they get those underwater things. I'm like, we got Michael Bean, we got Ed Harris, we've got underwater scooter devices. Yeah, it's either the abyss or, I don't know, whatever that James Bond one did the whole climax is underwater with those machines. Yeah, well, Connery makes that joke. He says, in my day, we did it with snorkels and flippers. He's talking about Thunderball. Thunderball, yeah, that's right. Like, it doesn't make Sean Connery cool that he can roll through the fire at just the <laughs> precise moment. It's so funny. It goes on for so long. And, like, the editing, like, they just keep cutting back to the same footage of him rolling. I'm like, how far is this tunnel that he's rolling through? Yeah, I don't know. Seriously, I'm curious. Like, this isn't my bag. I don't really like these kind of movies anyway, so it's probably no surprise to anyone that I'm not really loving this. But, Arnie, you're saying this is great? I'm saying this is good. I'm not saying great. I am not saying great. Okay, that's what I'm trying to gauge, because I heard this movie was great. This, to me, feels like a high school football game where you, like, brag you scored the touchdown, but nobody cares 30 years later. I can't imagine anyone that would come to this movie now and think it was a big deal. Even though I watched this a ton in the 90s, I've always thought it was lesser to Con Air. Con Air was always better for me. I always felt like I never saw what everybody sees in this movie to make it capital G great, but I really, really liked it in the 90s, and this time I'm going with it. I'm enjoying the performances more than the action this time around, whereas I think in the 90s, I enjoyed the action more than the performances. 
I'll just say the action is not great from this point on. Like, they're going to have this whole shootout in the shower room. Like, it's so clumsy. I don't know. The seals, I thought they'd be able to get by this booby trap a lot easier. But I realized, like, we got to get rid of all these seals, like, except for Goodspeed and Mason. But, again, Harris, the eternal good guy telling everyone to stop shooting. They just wouldn't listen to him. Like, I don't really like this. It's just, it's kind of corny to me. Very corny. Yeah, I find him annoying. And all of his cries for humanity, I'm like, don't give me that. You're pointing <laughs> missiles at San Francisco. Yes. I don't want to hear about how you're trying to protect lives. But he had no plan to use them. That's so dumb. That is so dumb. Yeah, he didn't think they are going to send in a team to try to get him. Come on. Right. So, But you broke in and, like, did it anyway. And it put motion detectors everywhere. <laughs> you handled this stuff that could, I mean, one pebble breaks and we're all dead. Like, come on. But every now and again, th this film surprises me, like, with its logic, dare I say, in a Michael Bay film, like, there is that one last seal that gets shot that was with Mason and Goodspeed, and they take his gun and his radio, and I'm like, come on, if, if Harris was a real army dude, real military guy, they notice, like, there's guns missing, they do counts, inventory, and they do, like, they're like, oh, there's other people alive because this soldier is missing his gear. I'm like, okay, small victories, but you're impressing me, Bay. <laughs> Well, here's another important part of this kind of movie is the location is is a character, right? We should know and understand how things are mapping out. When all of a sudden they're going into the Temple of Doom, riding like coal cars and things. Yes, that was my note. <laughs> I'm like, this is not Alcatraz. But I really do like Die Hard, the Nakatomi Plaza, like that building and understanding you're in the ductwork and all that. Really exploiting where you're at. If you're going to go to Alcatraz, give me Alcatraz show me why it was impenetrable to have to suddenly make this up and do an indiana jones scene feels again like they're just riffing on what was popular yeah this whole shootout going on while good speed is like in some kind of industrial bucket like just suspended from the ceiling like is there gold underneath alcatraz what are they mining under there what is going on <laughs> are they putting in modern plumbing there's a lot of construction going on underneath there and it's just not that exciting. Like, it literally, Nick Cage is lying in a bucket while bullets bounce off of it. I'm like, not great action. Like, let's get back to that car chase out in San Francisco. Unfortunately, it's not Die Hard here. It's reminding me of Under Siege. Die Hard on a boat? Ouch. Yeah, but a lesser, right? With a lesser star, less charisma. Less than Steven Seagal? Steven Seagal is less than Bruce Willis, <laughs> I'm saying. Okay, got it. <laughs> and this is also less than Bruce Willis. This is on par. I'm actually saying that Sean Connery in this movie is on par with Steven Seagal in his best <laughs> film. Yeah, if there was some witty banter going on, one-liners, whatever, something that Bruce Willis would have done as John McClane, like, I wouldn't be so annoyed of just watching Nick Cage in a bucket getting shot at. Like, Willis brought something. There, there was charisma there and charm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they're supposed to be lethal weapon and, and having the buddy cop dynamic of bickering, I just don't think there's enough of that. Agreed. There's some of it right after the troops leave. There's Nick Cage evolution. I mean, he starts off as a goody-goody, and he won't even curse, but he's like, hey, a-hole, <laughs> and trying to get him to stay is about as close as you get to the two of them really bickering, and then... Once Connery's on board, Connery's on board. 
Yeah, sort of. I don't know. He's always talking about, like, I feel like every other scene he's walking away to jump into the water and swim away. Like, he's not totally committed to this plan. And we will have, when we cut back to the suits, we'll see in the White House and various boardrooms, they are concerned about collaborating with the terrorists. They're waiting on, the whole thing is, we need to make sure that this special napalm thing is going to work. Otherwise, we would just firebomb the pole place and we wouldn't need to send in the team. Yeah, is someone doing, like, science? experiments to check on that thermite stuff (laughs) i think so yeah mr wizard is somewhere what they're doing is they know the plasma will destroy the gas but they don't have the plasma capable for full bombings yet and so they're working on weaponizing the plasma more yeah Good thing they can do it in 12 hours. So, yeah, they just, like, I don't know what that took, but they did it. You would think if you had a biochemistry, like, expert, that's what Nick Cage would actually be doing, (laughs) not running down in the mine shafts of the gold rush. Well, no, I thought he would be, like, somehow mixing chemicals and it would destroy what was ever toxic in those pearls. But no, literally, let's pull a circuit board out so the missile just crashes into the ocean and we're just going to step on them so they can't take them back and put them back in, like... That is it. Like, you don't need Nick Cage for that. Get Arnold. Get another SEAL to do that. Yeah. Arnold turned down this movie. Did they offer it to him? Was he going to be John Patrick Mason? I think he was going to be good speed. He was going to be the nerd? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. I guess there was Junior and Twins. He Maybe he could have pulled it off. It was going to be a different kind of movie. Let's face it. Like, this could have <laughs> gone a lot of different ways. And I'll just applaud that Nick Cage is making it his own. Whether you like that or not, it is definitely a Nick Cage role. And yes, his exasperations, the way he's playing off Sean Connery is the surprise of the movie. It's not what Sean Connery's doing. Sean Connery is just doing James Bond. It's watching Cage kind of poke fun at that and be the little kid version that brings any entertainment that I have watching these two. Cage referred to it as a Laurel and Hardy routine that the two of them worked up. And you're right. I think of Cage in a certain way, and it's his career after this movie. I think of Cage, and I think of Next, and Snake Eyes, and Con Air. It is hard for me to remember what a turn, and for lack of a better term, revelation, this would be that he could play the action hero this well. Right. Yeah, I mean, he will play this so many times that you forget this was the first. But this is the first, and I think you can see it's not the boldest. Again, you're right. Con Air one year later, and he's putting bunnies in boxes and what have you. And like 50 pounds of muscle on. <laughs> Face off with the ass grab in the priest outfit. That's all I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all can name many movies where he goes bigger. <laughs> but he's starting to get the confidence to do it here. Like I said, my only comparative is watching Johnny Depp, another eccentric who had a small romantic comedy kind of vibe but grew into an action star when he did Pirates. It's that kind of trajectory. From this movie, Nicolas Cage is what you're paying attention to, even though there are bigger stars, even though there's a lot going on. And can I celebrate something that I'm surprised I'm celebrating in a Michael Bay film of all places, but the hero is smart. The hero is educated. The hero has a PhD. Things Michael Bay will hate in later movies. Yes, this type of person is often ridiculed, mocked, stereotyped, and here 
that is our hero, and I applaud that. I do find it rare when we have smart heroes, and I like that. Smart in a Michael Bay movie, anyway. (laughs) He's a PhD. He doesn't show his intelligence in the movie, but he's an intelligent person. Again, I wish he was defusing bombs. His whole reason for being there, I think, is to tell Sean Connery or whoever else might have survived had somebody, hold this gently. Don't shake it. Yeah, it it seems like it's a two-person job until later on when it's just a one-person job. Yeah, he has to gently set those beads in a sewer grate? Something like that. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like a real safe place. It doesn't matter. (laughs) At any rate, you know, this is where we're kind of at the climax here. Like, basically, Hummel gets these guys by doing... I mean, the obvious. He grabs a tourist, puts a gun to his head, goes on the intercom and says, if you want to save a life, come out wherever you are. And Mason does. You know, he's broken out of a jail cell before. What does it matter that they're going to stick him in one now? We are to believe that he has looked into the eyes of Hummel and knows he's not a killer. Like, I feel like he has figured him out by this point and knows he's not in danger. Which is why he's, again, ready to leave the island. (laughs) Yeah, that's the, again, forever he's like, eh, this is not a big deal. I can tell this guy's not going to push the trigger. It doesn't matter whether, whatever it is, if there is a trigger and those missiles pointing anywhere like that guy is a huge threat and i don't know how you could walk away shrugging i don't know i wish this movie had shown us how he broke out like we see this sort of bit where he's tied some rope or made a rope out of bed linen and used it to like what would you say grappling hook kind of a door lever you just hit me with this. At no point does Ed Harris be like, why did they send in an old British dude? Yeah. <laughs> because I'm thinking by locking up Mason, he's already broken out, so he's probably going to be able to do it again. But Ed Harris doesn't realize this is the guy who broke out of Alcatraz, and yet he never wondered why this guy is here. Yeah, this is bizarre. Yeah. And I agree, like, this would be great if we had Harry Houdini type stuff going on with this jail escape, but at least we have the birth, the true birth of Nicolas Cage with Zeus's butthole just going way huge and crazy. (laughs) There is that, Hmm? for sure. This is the moment. Right. Yeah, he gets knocked out and locked up too. And again, this is, I think in these kinds of movies, you always want to have the older dude impress the younger dude. The younger dude's always like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. And yeah, Connery gets to show that he still got moves. And once again, Mason, Connery wants to leave. Like, got out of prison. I'm leaving again. Like, let's have another conversation to maybe try to get him to stay. Right. Meanwhile, Hummel is pay or play now. Like, the clock has run out. The arbitrary clock, I want to point out. He gave them some arbitrary amount of time. They're asking for more time. The other mercenaries are getting restless. Even his best friend, who is played by David Morris... That white guy that's in everything. Yeah, David Morse. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, maybe we should fire a missile or something. But it's a flaky move that he fires it and then doesn't let it hit the football stadium. And this is where the troops have already started to look at him askance. The deadline hit. He didn't want to fire the missile. And then the missile crashes. And yeah, Tony Todd, you could just tell he's going to be the spark that (laughs) lights the haywire here. He's ready to go. Although there is another guy here too. Gregory Sporletter, who I've seen in a bunch of stuff. I mostly remember him from True Blood. But these two are kind of the heckle and jekyll that are going to mutiny against the mutineer 
Yeah, we saw again. He had never worked with Ed Harris before. He's not one of the people that feels impassioned by what happened in Desert Storm. He just wants money. You know, you said a million each. I don't know why he thinks blowing up things is going to get him the money. Yeah, Hummel's response is like, they called her bluff. Like, let's go home, guys. Like, what are you supposed to do at that point? So lame. <laughs> I'm with Candyman, honestly. I just feel like, okay, <laughs> you are a lame bad guy. We need somebody that actually could be a real threat here. Get out of this picture. They do a Tarantino Mexican standoff. Everyone's pointing guns. And by the end of it, Ed Harris is pretty much dead. And we have new bad guys. Lesser bad guys, though. I mean, Tony Todd, say what you will about Candyman, is no Ed Harris. He lacks the presence. I mean, Ed Harris is barely Ed Harris in this. Yeah, Ed Harris wasn't good in this, so I appreciate that we have someone that wants to kill. You know, like, he's running around, he's throwing knives, you know, he's got Nicolas Cage cornered, something. Rocket Man? Was this working for you guys? This was the line Nick Cage read in the script and when they wouldn't remove it he had to create an entire backstory <laughs> for his character he had to buy a beatles album yeah bizarre <laughs> even nick cage did not like this line look for an action film to see a dude shot off on a rocket and then impaled on a fence that's pretty much what all i need yeah it's a dumb one-liner but i i enjoy the sequence i was actually proud of this movie for avoiding those types of puns most of the way Especially for having a Bond-type character. At one point when they're in a gunfight and the two of them put their heads up and they just crushed a guy with an air conditioner. And they stand up and look at the body and I'm like, oh god, here comes the Arnold pun line. Like, he's really chilled out or something like that. And... All that happens is Nick Cage goes, I think that's the most disgusting thing I've seen in my life. I'm like, yes, okay, they're not going to make that movie. You like Rocket Man? It's you. Oh, shit. All right. They decided they couldn't <laughs> not go there once. And we all know, we'll never call him Rocket Man. That's Candyman you just put on the fence. <laughs> and for Fry, yeah, he gets gives him a, a pearl to eat. And Why does he keep that pearl? Because we see him, he's trying to get that last chip out. And, like, it falls off of the string of pearls. And he, like, picks it up and just puts it in his pocket for some reason. That seems very dangerous. These are delicate. Mm. Particularly since he's flipping through plate glass yes. and what have you. Like, I just think, yeah, probably not what I would want to do with a highly volatile, toxic substance. But, you know, you got to have the injecting the heart with the needle. That's the whole point of this is that he's got to be willing to, to jab that needle in. But sorry, no Pulp Fiction. Was this movie R? It was. It surprised me because I only remembered one F word being said. It's something I, that doesn't usually catch me. So if, unless there's like a ton of them, there's four. I had to look it up because I only remembered one. But when you saw Candyman get impaled, I'm like, oh, is this an R-rated movie? Because it hasn't felt like it until this moment. Yeah, I agree. That was the moment where I felt like, okay, this movie is violent. But up to this point, it's felt pretty neutered. Part of that is, again, Nick Cage deciding he didn't want to say fuck until the very end, as that would show his character's evolution to full action hero. <laughs> but also just the editing style. I feel like a lot of the kills just kind of get lost in the montage. Yeah, no, there's a lot of shaky cam going on, which I don't like. And there are times where it feels like the print all of a sudden is like very blurry and like dark, like they didn't have coverage for a shot or that was the best <laughs> thing they got and they have to slip it in for a few seconds. It's it's surprising how rough looking it is because Michael Bay, for all his faults, like he can usually put out a pretty good looking piece of film. 
Yeah, he didn't have full creative control here. He wasn't able to do all the second unit stuff himself, which he said on the commentary he likes to do. He thought that some of the shots looked really cheap, and he was fighting over budget, and they didn't even want to give him all of the shots that he had prepped for. He walked off the set at one point because they were demanding he stick to the shooting schedule and he had fallen behind and was going to lose some shots. And yeah, this is a compromised Bay film because Bay is still, you know, this is his sophomore picture. But it's got still a hell of a visual style and you can't deny when you see those military jets flying over Alcatraz, that that does not have just a visual power to it. And Nick Cage with the flares to tell them not to bomb. I mean, that's a shot that was so great. They, even though it's the end of the movie, it's in the trailer. It's just corny, like how long he plays it and dramatic. He goes, look, if we ever get to Armageddon, like he does this to the nth degree. Like it's all starting here, but like having the girlfriend crying, thinking that her boyfriend's dead. Like he mm -hmm. really is a manipulator. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> the score sounds a little like Armageddon. At one point they're playing, I'm leaving on a jet plane here yeah. and that's in Armageddon. And when the girlfriend was crying, all I could hear was Liv Tyler going, that's my father in there. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> happily to be ignorant about all that you're discussing, never seen Armageddon, but I will say that I don't know that I would have recognized this as the work of Michael Bay, given that what I know of Michael Bay is the Transformers movies and the Bad Boys movies. Yeah, Stuart, there's a shot in this, I think it almost goes on for like eight seconds before there's a cut, <laughs> like, which is unheard of in modern Bay. Every half a second there's a cut now. Yeah, there's less scatological humor, there's less... The editing is not as rapid fire, although plenty of rapid fire. I don't want to imply that it's a slow film. But yeah, I feel like Bay, whether it's that he still hasn't had the creative control or still doesn't know how he wants his films to be, it's better for it. It's better that it's not as Bayesy as uh, some of the worst movies I can think of in his filmography. So many auteurs we've covered, Stephen King, J.K. Rowling, Michael Bay, they're better when they're less powerful because they collaborate. And once they get to a certain point, they think they know everything, can do everything. They become overly long, overly self-important, and not as good. I think that the key here is Bay didn't write the script. He came in on the script. He maybe worked on the script a bit. And then he had people looking over his shoulder telling him what he could and couldn't do. And then after this film, he said on the commentary, he's like, I now have my pick of any project. I have no idea what that, that was going to happen. And it feels weird. Yeah, now he can make movies about ambulances, I guess. Mm. He's really come far. But it's interesting. As we wrap this thing up and, okay, so the planes come in and drop the thing and boom. They drop one bomb that hurts nobody, I think? Yeah, Right. It's just so that they can, it can provide a, a cover that Mason was killed uh, during all of this. Yeah. Why does Womack or anyone believe that he's actually dead? Well, I mean, I think there's suspicion. You look at the actors' faces and, you know, they know, but what can you do? You know, the guy got away once. I guess he can get away again. I don't think that there would be a demand for a sequel. I don't feel like this movie has shown the fun of Cage and Connery together in a way that you'd want to see them get together again. Like, I feel like if you did make another one, it would be about someone taking over the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State Building. 
No, I love the lore that they set up at the end of this. I want the microfiche story. Either a sequel with Cage, he's got to get back with Mason because he knows who killed JFK or whatever, or some kind of prequel, like about that microfilm and him getting it. That has nothing to do with this film, but it's just a cool enough idea where if they said, oh, we're doing a sequel to The Rock, I'm like, I'm open to it. Bay knew what it was going to be, and you're pretty much on track there, Jacob. It was going to be that the U.S. government is now after Goodspeed because Goodspeed has this microfish and Goodspeed is on the run with his wife, Carla, and they get separated and in order to evade the government and get the government off his back, Goodspeed has to reach out again to Mason and the two of them have to team up to overcome the government somehow. Yes, exactly. Yeah, do whatever. To do something, because they don't really need Sean Connery ever in this movie. What did he do at the end? Like, Cage did it all. He shot people who came after Cage? He saved Cage. Yeah. Okay. Look, I don't think the relationship is great in here, but it was good enough where I would be open to a a sequel, as you described, Arnie. Like, maybe they would have been able to improve and and make this a better relationship, but it's good enough here that I'd want to see more. I agree, but I guess that gets to... The big question of Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Rock? Jacob. I mean, at at one point I wrote in my notes, I don't care anymore about this movie. And I looked at the time and there was 18 minutes left and that tracks like this is two hours. It should be like 100 minutes. Like they could cut a lot out because the action is not great. All those people that told me this is a great action film, you are wrong. There is a great action scene with that car chase in San Francisco. Nothing to do with The Rock. But, like, after that, it becomes just more of a standard shooting and walking around action movie. And there's a lot of those. And, again, if I'm going to like them, it's going to be because of personalities in the film. And I guess my theme for my review here is good enough. Like... (laughs) Connery and Cage are good enough. It's fun to see Cage going big and crazy like he'll really do later on in other films. Like, he's good enough. Like, there's enough here where I was smiling. I was chuckling every now and then. I wasn't totally hating it like if I was sitting through a Transformers movie. So, Bay, it's good enough. Whatever color green is good enough, this gets it. Stewart. I'll take that and I'll twist it a little. It's not that bad. Like, I, like I've been complaining a lot during this podcast because it is a subpar diehard ripoff. But if you were to judge it as such, I think, yeah, we haven't covered all of the clones, but certainly my memory of Under Siege and Cliffhanger. Speed. <laughs> yeah, even Speed. Like, uh, the later diehard sequels, 4 and 5. Like, this is better than most. Yes. I think that if you really (laughs) wanted a cookie cutter copy, I've seen it done worse. But that's not to say that they did it well. I mean, again, you need a good villain. You need a good location. If it's a buddy thing, you want the stars to play off of each other. None of that really works in this movie for me. But the compliment I have is as far as launching Cage as a talent in the action genre. Yes, this is showing that what he brings to the genre makes it more lively, more surprising, more unpredictable. All the things that this movie suffers from, its cliches, are tweaked because he is taking a cliched role and making it fun. Doesn't always happen, but I agree with you, Arnie. Conair is the better version of this. It's the crazier, more off-kilter version of this but as far as a blueprint for where cage is going to go next yeah i think that he deserves some compliments for making the rock a slightly better than average diehard ripoff 
which is to say that it's a mild not recommend. I was going to say, I don't think you recommended Con Air, so... <laughs> no, I did. Yeah, I did. Oh, you did? Yeah, oh, no, he did. He loved Con Air. Yeah, I like Con Air. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's right. It was it was like the out-of-left-field... It was Face Off that confused him. Face Off is an unwatchable <laughs> piece of shit, but... <laughs> this, yeah, of the three... This is somewhere in the middle between Face Off and Con Air. Between unwatchable piece of shit and Con Air. <laughs> it would be interesting for you to revisit Face Off with reset expectations. <laughs> now that you don't think it's some art film. No, never, never. I would walk away from the show before I would watch that movie again. <laughs> Fuck off is what that's called. <laughs> And if you can't tell from the positivity I've shown throughout this review, I do recommend this film. But I kind of stole my final thought earlier when I said, I don't know why people just loved it in the 90s. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I thought I was really looking for you to bring the fan love to this. And you were pretty mild boil on the, the enthusiasm here. Yeah, I watched it so often because I had nothing else to watch, and it was <laughs> diverting. You had every cable channel for free. Uh, I think you have a lot of DVDs, Arnie, but I get your point. No, but this was in 1996. Okay. In 1996, I would just turn on the pay-per-view channel and let it loop. That's why I watched the Flintstones like 18 times. All right. Well, if you're going to do that, then this is brilliant. Oh, impossible. Impossible to watch that movie 18 times. Yes. I can't count the number of times I watched The Shadow. I mean... Oh! Wow. So, it wasn't sheer fan love that had me watching this repeatedly, but I did like it. But yeah, by the time I got around to seeing this, there were better Nick Cage films out there. But this Icon Air as a one-two punch turned me into a Nicolas Cage super fan for a while. I mean, I would go and see virtually any movie he did... For several years, he finally did burn me out of himself, but I guess that's what next week is for, right? Yeah, I think that he has, again, he's probably made something that you've loved and a lot of things you didn't, and he's always been himself, so what does that mean? What is it to be Nicolas Cage at this point in his career? Yeah, this was sort of the start of the career, and we're going to see, I guess, the Nadir next week. Well, the Nadir is the lowest point, right? I, not, not to speak to the quality of the movie, I haven't seen it, but it's clearly a movie that portrays Cage as a wash-up and a made-for-straight-to-tape junkie. You've seen the preview, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. He is playing a punchline of himself. Yes, that I know. But yet, playing a punchline of himself in a theatrically released, wide-release film, I might add, feels like a huge step up for him. <laughs> I don't know, it reminds me of being John Malkovich to do something this self-aware, and I love that film. Yes, totally what they're going for. Yeah. Or that JCVD. Yeah, another film I enjoy. But that is it for this episode of Now Playing. So thank you for listening. Now, if you want even more Now Playing, we are wrapping up our Harry Potter Fantastic Beasts retrospective series this Friday. It came out this past weekend. Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. I'll tell you one secret, Depp ain't in it. I'll tell you another secret, Ezra Miller's probably not going to be in part four. <laughs> there ain't going to be a part four. 
But if you want to hear all of our Fantastic Beast shows, Harry Potter shows coming up in the next couple months, Top Gun 2, Jurassic World, and the Twilight Retrospective series, become a donor to Now Playing at the Platinum level, either through Patreon, Podbean, or a direct donation via PayPal. You can find the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And I want to give a shout out to some of our Platinum patrons over at Patreon. A very special thank you. Platinum and above, we've got Tom Ward. Jeff Wade. Maurice Wendell. Andrew Doran. David Smith. Adrian Moroni. Anthony Opes. And Benjamin Timmers. So thank you all very much for your support of Now Playing through Patreon. It is greatly appreciated, and we hope everybody listed there, and many we have yet to list, will enjoy Dumbledore this Friday. So Jacob, Stuart, thank you for joining me, and until next time, have a nice day. I had such an interesting day today. Yeah, I had kind of an interesting day myself. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. What do you say we cut the chit-chat a-hole? We hope you enjoyed the show. All I care about is, are you happy with your haircut? Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Let's hope this elevates their thinking. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. It's a grunge thing. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Gosh, kind of a lot's happened since then. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Enjoying this? Well, it's certainly more enjoyable than my average day. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. It's been a long time since I've said thank you to anybody. Thank you. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. But I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need it right now. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. The way I see it, you don't really have any choice. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. I only ask because in our current situation, well, it could prove to be useful information. Maybe! Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Well, I'm one of those fortunate people who like my job, sir. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Your men and I have to say thus far, your conduct reflects your reputations. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. These sound better. Now Playing credits read by Brock. 
I've rehearsed this speech a thousand times on the chance that we would meet. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. I meant it at the time. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Losers always whine about their best. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. There's something I've got to do, Bob. Something I couldn't do while you were here. I tried. You know I tried everything. And I still don't have their attention. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Well, gee whiz, John, I guess we ought to get going, huh? Whatever you say, Stanley. a tour of Alcatraz one time and strangely I was like the only person who showed up for it me and Marjorie so we had like a private tour of Alcatraz did you get to ride the mine carts like in Temple of Doom <laughs> beneath the prison no you didn't upgrade your ticket I see that that's the special feature they did tell me when they close all the jail cells at once that was the sound used in the Empire Strikes Back when they close the big door on Hoth and then What's funny is the next day I had a tour of Lucasfilm and I told that to my tour guide and they're like, everybody has a story. That is not where they got the sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This like, again, 